Well, hello everyone. I'm your host, Colton Prater, and this is the Fires of Revival podcast. And as always, I'm honored that you would take the time to listen to today's episode. And for today's episode, we have another special guest for you, uh, Mr. David Humphreys, my former teacher and now friend. Uh, he taught at the Christian school where I graduated from, uh, Victory Baptist Academy there in Shelbyville, Tennessee, and he taught the English and math classes. And if you know him, whether you've had him as a teacher or you currently have him as a teacher, I know because a lot of my audience comes from that area where I'm from. So many of you that are listening know exactly who he is, and you know that he has a passion and a love for teaching English and math. But more importantly than that, he also has a great love and appreciation for the scriptures. He teaches Sunday school at his uh, church that he attends every week, and he's very faithful at doing that. And he has a great love for the Bible and a great knowledge of the Bible. And for today's episode, he'll be doing a guest lecture on the King James Version and the issues regarding that. He's very knowledgeable in that issue, and if you've talked to him or got to know him for any length of time or any length period of time, whatever it may be, you know that he's very knowledgeable. He studied up many, many hours and hours and hours of studying and reading on that issue of whether the King James Version is God's word for English-speaking people or not. And for today's episode, he'll be giving a brief guest lecture. He's uh, told me that he took... 17 weeks of lessons, Sunday school lessons, and com- compiles it up into one brief lesson here for you. This is just a brief sur- a survey, just barely scratching the surface of all the key issues here of whether the King James Version of the Bible is God's word for English-speaking people or not. And I pray that after listening to this episode, uh, you will gain a new knowledge of what this means and what all is regarding in this, and that you'll begin to study this issue out for yourself. But without further ado, we'll open up with a word of prayer and then jump into his lecture here. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity for me to record this broadcast. Father, I ask that you just use this message here, Father, to impact people, Father, help people understand why they use the King James Bible and why that's the Bible they use and not just because their parents or their pastor uses it or tells them they use it to use it, but that they'll know deep down in their heart, this is why I believe what I believe, Father, and you'll just use this to help them in that, help them give a greater desire to want to study this issue out more and just study the Bible in general, Father, and in your Son's name, amen. Okay. Oh, the Bible is an amazing book. It's a miraculous book. Think about it. Forty men over a period of 1,500 years wrote it. These men were from different backgrounds, had different occupations, and were from different generations. But yet, the Bible fits together like a glove to a hand. There are no contradictions in this old book. This book has survived the fires of the Dark Ages and has survived the reign of Bloody Mary. God's hand has been on this book. Even the critics proclaim the superiority of the KJV. Uh, footnotes in the NIV and the NASB alike say, and I quote, the KJV is a fine version, perhaps the greatest single accomplishment in the history of Bible translation. It deserves our great respect. In 786, a Catholic scholar by the name of Alexander Ged said, and I quote, if accuracy and strictness attention to the strictest attention to the letter of the text be supposed to constitute an excellent version, This is of all versions the most excellent. The greatest preachers of the past four centuries have used primarily the King James Version. Edwards, Carey, Hudson, Hudson Taylor, Sunday, Spurgeon, Moody, Whitfield, and Wesley all use the KJV. The greatest missionary work in church history occurred between 1700 and 1900 using the King James Version. The KJV exalts the Lord Jesus Christ more than any other book on this planet. The KJV is the Bible of the Great Awakening and every major revival from 1611 until now. All new translations compare themselves, not to each other, but to the King James Version. Today I would like to talk to you briefly about what I call the five-fold superiority of the King James Version. 
I'm going to be talking about the superior technique, the superior, superior translators, the superior theology, the superior text, and the superior testimony of the King James Bible. Before continuing, I want you to understand that I have a twofold purpose today. I want to, first of all, build your faith in the King James Bible. And second, I just want to show you why we can stand firmly behind the King James. Also, before I continue, I want you to know where I stand. There are all kinds of philosophies and ideologies out there, and I am not here to dispute any of those. I simply want to give you an understanding of why I believe that we can trust this book. First of all, I believe the King James is the inspired and errant, which means without error, and infallible, which means incapable of failing, word of God for English-speaking people. I also believe the King James Version has been preserved by God to all generations, including this one. I also believe that all modern translations are corrupt and therefore false Bibles. But on the other hand, I've also believed that there have been false claims made on both sides of the issue. Um, and fifth, we have failed to get the Bible to all people groups, partially due to the confusion brought about by modern translators, also known as textual critics. So, my first point. The first area that makes the King James Bible the superior translation is the technique used by the translators. There are two basic techniques used in translation work. Formal equivalence, also known as verbal equivalence, attempts to render a source text word for word. Dynamic equivalence, also referred to as common language, is attempts to convey the thought of a source text. Most of the modern translations use dynamic equivalence. According to an article entitled, Why We Use the English Revised Version, this translation philosophy, known as dynamic equivalence, emphasizes the reader rather than the words of the original text. If something in the original text may be too difficult or obscure for the modern reader, the original text is translated with words or phrases intended to communicate the same general concept, a dynamic equivalent. Sometimes this is described as thought-for-thought -thought translation as opposed to an essentially literal word-for-word -word type of translation. In other words, when one picks up an NIV or ESV or other modern translation, they are in essence reading a paraphrase. They are not getting every word of God. Furthermore, dynamic equivalency originated from Eugene Nida. Nida believed that the scriptures were imperfect and that God's revelation was not absolute truth, even in the originals. He believed that the words of scripture are in a sense nothing in and of themselves. He also claimed that Christ's blood was not an actual offering for sin, but was merely a figure of the cost. Dynamic equivalency substitutes man's thoughts for God's words and lowers the Bible to the people, instead of raising the people to the Bible. On the other hand, the King James translators use the superior technique of formal equivalence, a word-for-word -word approach. They worked hard to maintain every word of God as they translated. That is why the KJV contains italicized words. The translators wanted readers to know that those words were added for clarity and not a part of the original. To me, it points to the integrity and character of the translators. Which brings me to my next point. Not only was the translation technique superior, the KJV translators themselves were far superior to modern day translators. Dr. Lancelot Andrews spoke 20 languages and was said to spend five hours a day in prayer. Dr. John Reynolds 
could speak Hebrew and Greek by age 18, and was called a living library in Third University. Dr. John Boyce spoke Hebrew at age 5 and Greek by age 14, and was so familiar with the Greek New Testament that he could at any time turn to any word that it contained. Dr. John Spencer was only 19 years old when he became a member of the Greek faculty at Corpus Christi College. Dr. Richard Brett was proficient in Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Chaldee, Arabic, and several Ethiopic tongues and was referred to as a most vigilant pastor, a diligent preacher of God's word, a, liter a liberal benefactor to the poor, a faithful friend, and a good neighbor. Dr. Lawrence Chatterton knew Latin, Hebrew, Greek, French, Spanish, and Italian, and was an avid soul winner and preacher. Now, compare these men to the modern translators. Dr. Virginia Mollencott, a literary critic on the NIV translation team, was an open lesbian. Dr. Martin Woodstrick, chairman of the NIV Old Testament Committee, once said, and I quote, My homosexuality has always been a part of me. Edgar Goodspeed, translator for the RSV in 1946, did not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ and called Genesis the product of an oriental storyteller at his best. Judas Brewer, Another RSV reviser stated, and I quote, The dates and figures found in the first five books of the Bible turn out to be altogether unreliable. Henry Cadbury, another member of the revised committee, believed that Jesus Christ was just a man who was subject to storytelling. Walter Bowie was another reviser who believed that the Old Testament was legend instead of fact. He says in reference to Abraham, and I quote, The story of Abraham comes down from ancient times. And how much of it is fact and how much of it is legend, no one can positively tell. Clarence Craig was one of the revisers who denied the bodily resurrection of Christ. Quote, it is to be remembered there were no eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. No canonical gospel presumed to describe Jesus emerging from the tomb. The mere fact that a tomb was found empty was capable of many explanations. William Sperry shows his dislike for the Gospel of John in the following statement. And I quote, some of these sayings, it is true, come, come from the fourth gospel. And we do not press that gospel for too great verbal accuracy in its record of the sayings of Jesus. Fleming James doubted the miracle of the Red Sea crossing. And I quote, what really happened at the Red Sea, we can no longer know. But scholars are pretty well agreed that the narrative goes back to some striking and pretentious event which impressed Moses and the people with the belief that Yahweh had intervened to save them. The same may be said of the account of the plagues. Concerning Elijah's action in 2 Kings 1.10, he said, and I quote, The narrative of calling down fire from heaven upon soldiers sent to arrest him is plainly legendary. Unlike the KJV translators, many of the modern translators had little to no faith in the accuracy of the scriptures, a fact that might shed light on my next point. In the King James Version, we find a superior theology. One of the most pronounced critiques of modern translations is how they differ from not only the King James, but also themselves. For sake of time, I'll give you five examples. Luke 4.4 4 of the King James admonishes us to live by every word of God. And I quote, And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. However, the same verse in the 1984 edition of the NIV, the RSV, the ESV, the NLT, and the NASB says, Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The last phrase is omitted. 
In other words, in the modern translations, the importance of the Word of God is often diminished. According to the KJV, John 9.38 proclaims, And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Here, Jesus' deity is recognized. But in the ASV, the American Standard Version, John 9.38 is unchanged. However, the translators add a footnote that strips Jesus of his deity. The footnote in the ASV reads, and I quote, The Greek word denotes an act of reverence, whether paid to a creature as here or to the Creator. Here, the very deity of our Lord and Savior is questioned. So, we've seen the Word of God diminished and the deity of Christ questioned in modern translations. A third example. According to Ephesians 3.9 in the KJV, Jesus Christ is the Creator. The verse reads, And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. The phrase, by Jesus Christ, is omitted in the NIV, the Revised Standard Version, the English Standard Version, the NLT, the New American Standard Bible, and other modern translations. So here we see the modern translations attack Christ's work at creation. The modern translations would also have us believe that Jesus was not without sin. In Mark 3.5, the KJV says, And when he had looked around about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, that's in reverence to Christ being angry, um, at the hardness of the hearts of those around him, an understandable response to their sinfulness. Yet the modern translations change Matthew 5.22 to make Jesus out to be a sinner. Matthew 5.22 in the KJV says, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. The phrase without a cause is important. However, many new translations have omitted it, making Jesus a sinner. Matthew 5.22, according to the NIV, says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. The RSV says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. The English Standard Version says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The NLT repeats that. And the CSB. The New American Standard Bible says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. So now we have the new translations attacking Jesus' sinless perfection. Finally, according to Matthew 18.11 in the King James, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. However, this verse does not even appear in the NIV, the RSV, the ESV, and many others. It has simply been removed. Although it does appear in the New American Standard Bible, it appears in brackets with a footnote that reads, Early manuscripts do not contain this verse. That brings us to my next point. What convinced me more than anything that the KJV was far superior to the modern translations was the study of the origins of the manuscripts that laid the foundation for them. I could spend days on this topic alone, but let me just summarize a few details. According to the experts, 5,255 copies of the original manuscripts exist today. Of course, the originals are no longer in existence. These are just copies. But of these 5,255 copies, the KJV agrees with 5,210 of them, which is 99.3%. There are basically two text streams of manuscripts that can be traced back to Bible times. 
The 5,210 manuscripts already mentioned make up the majority text, also called the Byzantine text, the Syrian text, or the Texas Receptus, which originated in Antioch, Syria. The remaining 45 manuscripts make up the minority text, also known as the Alexandrian text, which originated in Alexandria, Egypt. The King, James, the King James Version is based upon the majority text. Most of the modern translations are based upon the minority text. It's interesting to me that the two cities of origin, Antioch and Alexandria, happen to be mentioned for the first time in the same chapter of the Bible, Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, we have the stoning of Stephen, who was from Antioch. He was being stoned for preaching by men from surrounding areas, including Alexandria, Egypt. In the Bible, the distinction between Egypt and Antioch is very clear. Egypt, always a picture of the world, is called the house of bondage in Exodus 20, verse 4. God's son was caught out of Egypt, according to Hosea 11.1 1 and Matthew 2.15. Egypt is categorized with Sodom in Revelation 11.8. On the other hand, Antioch, Syria, was a hotbed of early Christianity. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Paul and Barnabas taught in Antioch for one year. The first missionary journey started at Antioch, according to Acts 13. By the way, most of the world's philosophies that we are warned about in Colossians 2.8 originated in or near Alexandria. Would you rather have a Bible out of Egypt or Antioch? Before we move on to the final point, I need to talk about the two most corrupt manuscripts in existence, the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus. These two manuscripts form the basis of the Westcott-Hort Greek New Testament, a work that most of the modern translations are based upon. They are the main part of the minority text out of Alexandria. These two manuscripts disagree with each other over 3,000 times in the Gospels alone, not to mention the thousands of differences to the KJV. Let me challenge you to pick up any modern translation and read the preface. When the preface mentions the oldest and most reliable manuscripts, it is referring to these two manuscripts, which are neither the most reliable nor the oldest. When you read most modern translations, you are reading a translation that is based on these corrupt manuscripts. The KJV translators had access to these same manuscripts, and they correctly rejected them. It should be obvious that the KJV is far superior based, on, based upon this manuscript evidence. Finally, the KJV has a far superior testimony. The KJV is the Bible of the early church and the great men of God through the centuries from the Anabaptist to Martin Luther, John Wesley, George Whitfield, Billy Sunday, C.H. Spurgeon, to name a few. Furthermore, the KJV is the Bible of the greatest missionary movements the world has ever seen. Matthew 7.20 says, Wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. Millions have been led to Christ with the KJV alone. The text of the KJV is a spawn of the great revivals in history. The First Great Awakening, the Sandy Creek Revival, the Second Great Awakening, and others were born on the back of the KJV. What are the modern translations given us? I think I'll stick with the old King James. It is far superior to any other so-called Bibles. The technique used to translate is superior. The translators were superior men who revered the Word of God. The theology of the KJV is superior. The texts or manuscripts used in the KJV are superior. Finally, the testimony of the KJV is superior.
Thank you for listening, and I pray that you have a blessed day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. I thank you for the opportunity I had to present this lesson, Lord. I hope it's a blessing to those who listen to it. And I'll just give them a great rest of the week. In Jesus' name, amen.